if you are not careful and you let yourself be captured by the news and all the noise, it can confuse you into believing that there is more wrong in our society than right with it, that there are more selfish people than selfless people. It is easy to fall into this trap because that's how traps work. They are designed to bring you in and keep you there. The antidote to this comes when you realize that the world isn't full of traps. It's full of goodness, a goodness that far outweighs the bad. Every day, there are more people that you know, that you meet, that you pass by, who focus their efforts and energy into helping others, in service to others, to making their country, their community better. Just as the saying goes, iron sharpens iron. We draw in strength from service, and our service spreads strength to others. The people who spread that strength often blend in with the noise of the world. They are the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the veterans, the police officers, and so many others. We refuse to listen to the noise, and we want to spread our common goodness by telling the stories of service of everyday people from our citizen servants. This is the Strength from Service Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Strength from Service. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jake Palmer, and as always, joined by the illustrious, talented duo of Mike McLaughlin and uh, Jack Zimmerman. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Good to see you again. Uh, who's going to introduce our amazing guest? Mike, why aren't you doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll do the introduction. And I, illustrious. I'd say I'm probably infamous, and Jack's probably luscious, but we'll go I'm, with it. <laughs> I'm over here Googling. Yeah, that's, that's a little then. bit of both. Yeah, uh, infamous, infamous, luscious, uh, illustrious. Mike, what did Jake just call me? <laughs> Yeah, all good things. Yeah, all good all things. All good things. So uh, our guest, there is another person here uh, with us tonight besides us uh, playing grab ass over here. He's uh, he's doubting why he's here at the moment, but <laughs> correct. Uh, so our uh, our guest tonight is Brandon Maceman. Uh He is uh, area native. Uh, grew up in Lake Crystal area. Graduated from Lake Crystal High School, uh, 1999. Uh, went on to enlist in the army. So in the pre 9/11 uh, era, which. I always have a lot of respect for those guys because there wasn't a whole lot, you know, going on, you know, at the time nationally. So you really had to have a dedication to serve to be going in the military at that time frame. Uh, went on and ended up making it into uh, the U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, the Green Berets. Served there uh, in, in, on the Special Forces side for 19 years. Uh, uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, just shy of about 23 years total or 23 years total in uh, the United States Army. Uh, made it to the highest enlisted rank uh, in uh, the military of Sergeant Major, uh, retired as uh, Sergeant Major out of 10th Special Forces uh, over in Europe in the summer of 2022. Yep. I get that right. Uh, returned back home, uh, southern Minnesota area, uh, where he initially took a position uh, as an HR director with a, a regional health uh, care uh, network. Um, he is a husband to was it Lacey. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Wonderful lady. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, well done. Well done. Yeah, Good yeah. Job. Still married. Yeah. Uh, two, two daughters, uh, teenage girls, right? Yes. Oh, yep. man. And special forces. You're just, you know, yeah. all, all in, man. Um, you got to be with two daughters. <laughs> uh, he's still serving in that healthcare uh, field now as the operations manager for Mayo Clinic in the Mankato area for uh, urgent and emergent care. Um, also, uh, something I learned a couple weeks ago is assistant coach for the high school uh, ski team here in the Mankato area too. So I was out helping 
kids learn to, to ski and compete and be leaders and uh, the value of, of competition and, and teamwork and camaraderie. Uh, I also know from uh, a couple other vets, too, in the area is involved with uh, the Warriors Hockey League, which in Minnesota is a, a nonprofit that helps uh, former military members and veterans uh, with service-connected disabilities uh, get involved in hockey as a way to kind of bond and have some recreational uh, therapy. There's hockey teams throughout the, the um, uh, state of Minnesota. They provide all the gear and everything for it, too, that are going through. It's a real, real cool program. It's a real uh, productive uh use of your time and, a, and a, a learning skill for a lot of people that aren't into it. I know Brandon's Absolutely. talked a couple of our friends into to playing hockey uh, for it too, including uh, their team goalie now, who is apparently uh, the best wall since the one in China, uh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently from what I, what I hear. Uh, so, I, I mean, literally from, uh, you know, national service uh, to the highest, you know, uh, you know, elite special forces around, around this world, around this uh, country for about quarter of a century almost, almost 25 years, 23 years. Uh, if you look at that that time frame to coming back to his community, raising his family, and, and helping get involved in trying to find ways to continue to serve. So with that, welcome, man. Well, thanks for yeah. having me. Thanks for coming, Brandon. That's a, that's a, so uh, skiing, medical, special forces, what don't you do, man? Um. I'm not good at underwater basket weaving. Okay, well, there's always got to be something, I guess. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. So uh, I, I guess the uh, the question that begs to be thrown out there first is uh, pre 9/11. So what was the driving force for you to uh, to want to enlist and, and join up? I, it was two things. Uh, first thing, I'll be straightforward and honest, was college money. Like okay. I, I wanted to get an education. There's no way I was gonna. I came from uh, lower middle class, so the probability of getting a free education or a scholarship. It's probably a BC student. Didn't really have a lot of drive. Um, you know, kids nowadays probably would have, I probably had attention deficit disorder or whatever it was. So like the, the desire to, uh, serve, um, put on a uniform, kind of get that structure was something I needed. I didn't know it, uh, but it was definitely beneficial. So literally the day I graduated from high school, I walked across the stage, grabbed my diploma, walked down the other side, got in a recruiter's car. Uh, Phil Miller was the recruiter, shipped off to basic training in AIT at Fort Knox, Kentucky to be in 19 Delta. Um, ended up while I was there changing from, they used to have this thing called split option. So you do like your first summer basic, come back to college, second summer, do your AIT. While I was there, I changed it. I said, let me stay the whole time because I know let's, I won't come back. Let's go. Yeah. Yep. Um, For those that don't know, what's a 19 Delta? So 19 Delta is a Cav scout. It would be like a, 19 Deltas wouldn't, like I said it this way, but it's a glorified infantryman for, for armor. Yeah, so, right. Okay. Yep. Um, do a lot of reconnaissance and other things, but so, yep. So went, did that to the National Guard, came back. After finishing up basic training in AIT. Uh, Where were you stationed under? What was your home drill? What do they call it? Drill or whatever? Yeah, drill. So I was here in Mankato. Uh, the two of the 135 had some phenomenal leaders uh, that I I didn't know how good they were until I left Minnesota and went on active duty. But some amazing, out of platoon sergeant, Paul Nett, he's probably still in the area. I got to give him kudos. Raymar Davis, Tom Dahl, uh, just these phenomenal leaders that were just incredible mentors that I never knew how amazing they were here from Minnesota, still in the area. Some of them still in the area, some outstate Minnesota. Um, yeah. So then I, I did that for, came back in the guard, went to school for a little bit for architectural drafting. was kind of like, eh, started right. working construction and eh. R- went up to spirit mountain and ran lifts when construction wasn't going, was kind of bored. Uh, went to the Metro, did some construction, was just basically kind of looking for direction. Um, and then some, some, some terrorists flew a couple planes into a couple buildings. I got 
called up and activated to go to the airport. And I'm like, I'm not going to go sit at an airport as a National Guardsman. Much as it's phenomenal service and honorable, I was like, if I'm going to do this, let's do this. And so I uh, volunteered to go on active duty, um, had to do some paperwork from the Guard, uh, you know, proposed to my wife. You know, did all those things you do before yeah, you go to war. Right, right, right. Yeah, same, the, same wife? Oh, same wife. Okay. So yes. just, just one. Well, just the one. Well, <laughs> enlisted, yeah, after him. After yeah. uh, <laughs> well, and SF doesn't have a very good reputation. So, uh, um, But, uh, yeah, so then, uh, yeah, you know, went on active duty, ended up at the 101st, um, was there. And it's kind of when I reflected back to my leaders in Minnesota from service-wise. Like, I had some of the best squad leaders and platoon sergeants and, and officers that you could imagine. Um, nothing against the 101st, but I was not prepared for the rest of America. Sure. Um, that was quite a shock to meet, yeah. you know, the different leadership that was out there. When you were, when you were with the, the guard unit, um, and, and you said they got activated and sent to, it was like, uh, MSP, right? Yep. Uh, the Minneapolis St. Paul airport, the international airport. Uh, cause a lot of people don't realize that we didn't have like the Homeland security and the beefed up TSA that we had now back then. I, a guy I work with was part of that crew. The guy, they did like a month and a half doing security at the airport. Yep. And then actually they sent a bunch of people up to the Canadian border to do like border because yep. at that time, like nobody had like any idea what was next. They were, you know, looking, looking at all avenues and all approaches for things. So I don't, I don't think the average, I think the average citizen that that's either not, wasn't currently serving in the guard at that time or doesn't have anybody that they know realizes, you know, how much the local guard units kind of filled in that, that, you know, WTF, you know, a moment oh, yeah. post 9-11 uh, why all the active duty military units were trying to get the big machine rolling to figure out how to you know get get back and well, ready and, for and war. You, and you, you took local local Minnesota citizens, and you I mean we were armed to the hilt, right? You put them in the airport. That's an incredible amount of responsibility standing there with a yeah. you know an M sixteen with a full magazine and everything else. Like it, it it it's it's more than I think people appreciated at the time. I mean they weren't trained for that level, but. They stood up to the challenge. Everybody around me, again, phenomenal leaders. Say if we didn't have any negligent discharges, we didn't have anything crazy. Like no office. That's Minnesota. Most of them are probably deer hunters too. Yeah, that helps. Carrying a gun sober is, you know, always a bonus. (laughs) No, no airport pops. Yeah, right. No airport (laughs) pops. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Everybody's got one. But before, uh, too, before I go too far down, uh, how about family? Uh, Dad, grandparents, anybody else serving the military at all? So, uh, actually, an interesting connection. So, my grandfather, uh, Navy veteran, he was a Korean War vet. when I was a kid, I didn't have a lot of discipline, so he kind of thought I was a kind of a – I mean, I think he loved me still, but he kind of thought I was a turd burglar. And one of, like, the most meaningful days of my life is when uh, I graduated from basic training, and he came up and, like, stood in front of me and was, like, in tears, like, oh, my gosh, you finally amounted to something. So like, <laughs> I never thought this day would come. Yeah, it's pretty much what it was. And then we stayed – we became incredibly close after that, just sharing, because he was a Korean War vet. Um, he was on the USS Coney. And he's had all sorts of crazy stories, sure, and so it was just like a neat connection. Is you the know. USS Coney like a Wienermobile, but on the water? Or? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he just flipped in his grave. I'm going to tell you right now, he just flipped. A little, a little, a little destroyer that floated around and looked for mines. Yeah, so. I mean that, that's one word for it. <laughs> yeah, I I want to point out the thing that uh, I've noticed on this podcast uh, that we we hear a lot from our guests is uh, you said the thing that I think surprises people, at least me, is. Always the guys who seem to go on and do the most with the military always said the same thing. I was an average to below average student. <laughs> yeah. My grades weren't great. I didn't think I really had a shot at college. The kind of people that you wouldn't think would go on to be like exceptional, you know, uh, you know, military personnel. And uh, and they always seem to find a way. It's like there was that little bit of you just needed that drive, right? Is um, that way, well, how you describe it? Or I think you need to be threatened 
more often, you know, <laughs> and uh, maybe run in the morning. You know, that always and, helps. And maybe, maybe, and without being too tongue in cheek here, maybe that's the thing where when you've been kind of subpar with your grades and your school, you're kind of used to uh, everybody hammering on you a little bit, and then when you get to that military experience, it's it's like, oh, this is natural. I'd, I know, okay, I'd characterize you know. it like a, a common theme. Uh, I, I think between me and, and Jack and a lot of people we've talked to is. You know, initially we're too lazy to start, but once we go, we're too dumb to quit. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then eventually, you know, that you just build that steam and momentum, and you know, like a snowball downhill. Eventually, you're very well stated, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so, the military helps overcome that you know, too too lazy to start part of it. Well, I think there's a piece too. Like this, I'll bring this up later in my career, but what you realize within like special operations is creativity, right? Like the okay. the, the the BC student, the the athlete, kind of the individual who's in the shadows and you can tell as a leader but but you know they don't fit in the mold of being an academic leader they're not a quarterback they're not the prom king you know that individual when you give them an opportunity and say okay like hey, hey apply some creative juices to figure out how to sneak javelins into an onset country <laughs> so you can eliminate a threat in recent events right like they're like oh i can do this and that's right. kind of that charge or that motivation and you, and you start to see people like okay this is like this is why this matters, and then they start to really deliver. So it's was uh, was athletics a part of your background in school growing up? Or I mean, I was an endurance athlete, so uh, we didn't have a ski team or anything crazy. You know, mentioned that I'm coaching ski now, but I was a cross country runner. Um, I was actually I was I was a dweeb. I think I broke 100 pounds my junior year. I was tiny. <laughs> I remember I went off. You know, my senior year I went off to basic training and came back. I think I was like 100 and after you know all that I maybe 120 pounds. I was a pretty small. They make you a double rations. Yeah, uh, I was I was double rations like. Because I was a runner, they'd let me run with one couple of the other runners that were on college scholarships. Um, but like, uh, it's funny in basic training, I ran my two mile and I finished, and they were like, "You're not done yet." I'm like, and then my graders like, "No, he's done." Well, keep running. And so I, <laughs> I ran like an extra three quarters of a mile because everybody was it was pretty funny. Um, but the uh, yeah, I mean, I, so basically endurance sports, and that that was pretty much it. I wasn't much of a wasn't you know like I tried wrestling when I was little and sucked. No, um, me too. You know I. <laughs> Yeah. Tried football and yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Right. Like I loved baseball, but pitchers got too fast. I didn't grow. So I mean, it was you know really what it came down to was endurance and and I, alternative sports. Like I was a big skateboarder, inline skater, floor um, routine. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> floor routine. Yeah, ski ballet. So Did you do the ribbon thing. That was, oh, uh, with, uh, that's well, amazing. That's so beautiful. <laughs> well, talk about creativity. That's what I think about. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, I think it's important to point out too that there that there's that. Uh, that spot where you once you find your your chance, I guess, to shine, and someone gives you that opportunity, uh, whether it's you know the military or whatever, it you know you 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 have to be able to grab that opportunity and run with it. And I think that's something that in high school, and not to bag on high school, but in high school, there's only so many there's only so many windows they can put you in. You know, if you're if you're not the prom king, you know, if you're not the athletic guy, if you're not the academic guy you know what else then you're in shop class you know i mean that's it and mm-hmm. so uh the military kind of gives you that chance to i think they're that's the one thing that <clears throat> excuse me we don't we don't give the military enough credit for is they're pretty good at usually finding someone and going you know what you're going to be better at this than at this and the only analogy i could make to it is uh football players and you see guys come out of high school and he's the star quarterback and he goes to college and they make him a safety. Yeah, they make him a yeah. safety. And then he gets recruited to go to the pros and they make him a you know, tight end. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and so there's that, that ability to see the potential of somebody. Oh, yeah. I mean, without question, I think the uh, – well, two things in the military. It's all what you make of it. Like you can mm-hmm. go in and you can be 
you can be incredibly service oriented. You could end up in special operations. You can end up, you could end up an officer from enlisted. There's endless opportunities to, to, ex- to excel and to, you know, um, like follow any path you want to, but you can also not. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, lots of us have people that have served and, you know, those dumb, I didn't like it. I mean, they're still, it's honorable. I appreciate their, you know, the volunteerism and right, standing right. up for your country. Cause it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no, I'll tell you, if you would have sat me down in December 20 or January 13th of 1999 and said, Hey, Brandon, you're going to go retire an SF Sergeant major. I'd have been like, yeah, whatever. Well, what are you smoking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, no. And so, I mean, I, for me, it was honestly the, it was a pathway to education. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then, and then the opportunity presented itself to serve from a sense that, you know, that some, some terrorists decided to fly into a building and they needed people to stand up and right. volunteer. So from a infantry combat arms, you know, between Jack, you and me, I mean, that's what I would say is I just got lucky that there's happened to be like the longest period of war with an opportunity to serve. And I, I don't mean that to, you know, seem inhumane or anything like that, but when you look at, you know, people in, in the gap years where there wasn't, you know, war going on in the combat arms and the infantry element where there wasn't a show to go to, um, you know, it, it's just, it's weird to say I feel fortunate to serve uh, when I did because, you know, some of the worst memories, but some of the best memories. And I think those difficult service uh, periods are some of the ones I have the most pride of and, and the, the strongest relationships with well, people. Well, it's a huge part of our, our identity. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I mean, it's a lot of the people we hang out with, you know, our, our fellow veterans, you know, because that's who we relate with now. And, and uh, I was just recently back on Fort Campbell, and, and uh, when I was on post, I started looking around. And when I, when I first got to Fort Campbell, you know, in 2000. 10 uh it was so hard to find anybody that didn't have a deployment patch you know yeah <laughs> and now i'll go on post and and uh it's exactly the opposite you know, even got, leaves. yeah you even got team leaders and stuff you know e5s and stuff that are yep you know haven't never been deployed and it's not nothing against them i mean it's not their choice or anything but it's just uh how fast these things flip you know and and Different and the guys dynamic. yeah yeah it's just most of the guys that are around there now have never been in combat it's kind of wild to think about yep. So I'm, I'm kind of curious because uh, this is something I've often wondered because, you know, especially hanging out with these two, you know, with Jack and Mike, who were uh, infantry to the core. And typically what you see, and, and I see it with my brother uh, also, who was uh, solid infantry guys, they go in wanting to be infantry. That's like their whole existence is like, I want to I want to go infantry. There has to be something that either flips in you or was always there that said, I want to be a sergeant. I want to start to lead. I want to be. I want to be a leader. I want to. I want to take on more of a role. Is that something that you always had, or is that something that just developed as you went through the system and, and just found that like it's the next progression? I think you just want to get out of mopping floors, so you want to get yeah. <laughs> get some more rank. You get the shitty fire watch. You know, that's you right. Enough yeah. times you get the yeah. the zero four to zero five, and then you're like, ah, I need to get some. That's probably else. the biggest motivator to get in rank, honestly. Oh, without question. I mean, I think the other piece to it too is like, and maybe I don't know about you know, everybody else in the room, but I had a huge problem with, uh, uh, authority. Like yeah, I, sure. I did not like people telling me what to do. Like my biggest pet peeve to this day is picking up cigarette butts. Like if you tell me to mm-hmm. pick, I don't smoke. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, yeah, picking I, up, I'm not picking up your God, ass and trash. Worst. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so like that was, I mean, that wasn't my necessarily my motivation to continue to serve, but to get promoted, it was like, I'm not going to make people pick up cigarette butts. Right. Yeah. Like, so whatever your random pathway to not to have to pick up cigarette butts was it that's what it was for me dude like so. like literally mine mine well the working party side of it obviously only made non-commissioned officer but mine was like i'm tired of having an nco that falls oh, yeah. out of a run like 
like we need somebody that's not and it's like well you know i hated running but it's like i fucking hated people that fell out of runs too that were supposedly leaders and it's like hey, yep that ain't gonna be me and right we'll get no there. absolutely and yeah. and uh you know i think i think once you get the rank i think the the leadership almost kind of comes naturally right because it's just kind of it's kind of handed to you to, to to become a leader right like hey go disseminate this information hey take your guys over here hey do that it just you're given the opportunity to be a leader so so easily that I think you just kind of fall into that leadership role in a sense. Well, I think the other piece too is the, the the turnover in the military is basically a 36 month cycle. Like a lot of people don't know this, but leaders are constantly changing. So you you basically every 36 months you have the ability to redefine yourself within okay. reason, right? So you get get this fresh start. You show up like, hey, I want to be a better person. I want to be a better leader. I want to be I want to be a better runner. I want to be a better shooter. Like you go to this new unit and, and it's your opportunity to have a fresh start. I mean, you have some street cred coming behind you, you know, but typically you can overcome it just with not being the person you previously didn't want to be. And so that's where uh, that's where that leadership thing really comes into is you can define who and how you want to lead based off of others that you want to emulate or you maybe don't want to be anything like. Yeah. And you can start to adopt that and, and see it either succeed or fail. And I, think, I think some of the best advice I got going to the military was is nobody cares what you do in the military except for you, right? Like 100% of your career is on you. If you want to go to the top and become a sergeant major in an SF unit, you have the ability to do that in the military. You know, if you work hard enough, you, you, can, you can achieve that, you know? And uh, I think that was the coolest thing about the military is your destiny is completely in your own hands. You know, if you, if you, wanna, if you wanna go chase this dream, <laughs> they're all for it. You know, if you wanna go dive, if you wanna go free fall, whatever it is that you wanna do, they'll give you the opportunity to do it. And it completely relies on, on you to go succeed and, and make it happen. Here's a here's an interesting question for our non-military listeners. Um, they so, can't respond to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you, when you when 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 you hear when you hear a term like uh, you were in special forces, to me I always think, well, special forces that's like that's the top of the top. That's the cool stuff, right? So, wh- how does your day look different when you become a sergeant major as opposed to just a normal, you know, SF dude? You don't, get, you don't get to go to the arms room. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. So I guess two things, right? Like I was very fortunate to be a sergeant, sergeant's major within SF. So, as much as my SF peers that are probably going to listen to this and be like, "Wow, yeah, you lied through your teeth," mm-hmm. like I still got to, I still got to maintain my fitness, got to shoot, got to train, got to be part of the stack, got to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of sergeants major within um, outside of the special operations community. They, they very much transition to your administrative leader. Like, okay. and, and they have a very important job to, you know, health and welfare of the unit, discipline, mentoring officers. Um, but an SF, like, I mean, I, I always call it the fountain of youth when you're in the military because you hang out with 25-year-olds. And my biggest, my, my biggest, like, thing that I love to do is just beat young kids as a sergeant major. It made me so happy to just <laughs> – to pick the events because I could pick it as a sergeant major and then crush them and then be like, you all suck and then walk away. So get better. Yeah. yeah, Like, so uh, on, on that vein, we kind of circled back around to it. I mean, transitioned from the national guard, uh, one active 19 Delta. So, so uh, yeah. So while I was in the guard, I reclassed 11 Bravo. It was kind of weird. There's an MTO change for Minnesota. They went from heavy to air assault. So I had to go through 11 Bravo, went on active duty, went to Fort Campbell. Sure. Yep. Reported there to, uh, no slack battalion three, two, seven, um, what time frame is this? This would have been 2002. So it was post 9-11. Uh, I think I reported in February. Did you um, deploy with them then? I did not. I did not deploy with them. So that's an interesting story I'll share with you guys. So I, yeah. I showed up there. Um, I wanted to go to ranger school, wanted to do all these great things. 
I made the mistake of volunteering. You know, they say like, Hey, when you're in the military and you have a skill, like don't tell anybody. Yeah. So I showed up on the first day at, at three, two, seven. And the Sergeant major comes in and he's like, who here knows how to call in direct fire. And like, heck yeah, I know how to call in direct <laughs> oh, fire. Oh, I know. I'm going to get to go to the reconnaissance battalion reconnaissance platoon. He's like, okay, sweet. Come on over here, son. Have a seat. You know, uh, that's actually brings up another funny story. I'll share too. Uh, but, uh, uh, he's like, okay, you're going to go to Delta Company, which is which is vehicles, which pissed me off. <laughs> and you're going to be the company commander's RTO. And I was like, you got to be kidding oh, me. What a chogey boy, right? Yeah. So ended up hanging out with the company commander. But that's the funny story, right? So I get that word. I go down to Delta Company. I show up. I walk into the room, and there's a new LT who comes in. And I'm sitting there. We're both in PTs. First sergeant, who this guy, I won't bring up his name, but I hated this dude. <laughs> he comes in, and he, he points at me, and he's like, you, get in my office. I was like, okay. Yeah. He points to the other guy. You get outside and do PT with your platoon. And I was like, okay. I sit in there, and he just starts talking to me into his office. He's like, okay, sir. He start this and that, and sir, this, and you're going to get this platoon. And, and I'm like, hey, at, hey, at first sergeant, he's like, hey, sir, stop talking. Let me finish. And I'm like, at first sergeant, he's like, sir, shut up. I'm like, okay. So I let him finish. <laughs> he gets done. He's like, hey, do you have any questions, sir? And I was like, actually, I, I'm I'm specialist maceman. Like, <laughs> I'm an enlisted guy. You just sent the lieutenant out to do PT with the men. He's like, and then he just lit into me like, you piece of shit. Yeah. Blah, blah. And I was Why like, did you say something? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that was, that was, you know, just a nightmare. Um, but so then me and that individual first sergeant didn't get along at all. We hated each other. So, um, and then. Because you're an obvious, you know, liar. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and so, yeah. Well, then, so then. First sergeant logic. Yeah. Oh, man, that was, we wouldn't talk about that guy. Yeah. Uh, and I had to be a first sergeant at one point in my career, which was fun. Um, but the, uh, you know, from there, then I really wanted to go to ranger school. Like that's the, one of the main reasons I wanted to go to combat with 101st, uh, because a really good friend of mine, fellow national guardsman, you know, Jeremy Benson was in the 101st and he was like this, I put him on a pedestal, you know, super great guy. Um, and then I wanted to go to ranger school cause I wanted my ranger tab. And honestly, I probably would have been done after one combat tour in ranger school. Uh, didn't get to go to ranger school ever. Uh, and uh, never went to combat with 101st. So that's when I was like, screw you guys. I walked down to SF Selection, and I was like, hey, I don't know what you guys do. I had literally had no clue. I just know 5th Group guys look really cool. They got a bunch of brand-new trucks to go invade Afghanistan. They were like Toyota Tacomas. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, and I just want to do that. And so I you know, went to Selection, and, and then that kind of just started the next, the next journey. So. So uh, selection, is that all in-house at uh, Fort, Fort Campbell or the Fort Braggs they send you to? No, so you go, when you sign up, you have to go through a whole series of physicals and did, a bunch of random stuff. Did you have stuff. to re, uh, extend or re-enlist more too, or how much time did you have in your contract at this time? Oh, I think I had two years left. Um, you didn't have to extend. If you, got, if you got selected, they would make you do some ADSO stuff, depending. Um, but so, yeah, the biggest thing you had to do is go through a physical uh, – you know, do all these random tests, do a PT test, do like seven pull-ups, just a, some hokey stuff that wasn't hard. Um, and then you, you shipped off to Fort Bragg. They didn't give you any instructions where to report. You just had to like find your way. And, and that's kind of the whole piece of this that for SF that, you know, I can kind of explain that piece to from a sense of selection wise. Um, but like the, basically it's like a, so when you talked about special forces or the question of what they are, like what it really is, is you have a bunch of individuals who typically, BC students. I mean, some of them are some of them are 4.0 students that are doctors. Some of them are F students that have GEDs. But really, you have that BC student, um, and they're just self motivated individuals who want to win. And so you show up, and you don't get any instructions, and you spend 21 days or so, you know, just enduring a crap ton of walking with heavy stuff on your back. Um, and you show up because you want to be better. 
yeah. than everybody else. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? That's the whole point. You're there. I mean, you don't want to be average. You want to be a part of a more elite group of guys. I mean, you're, you want to try out for a team. I mean, With that, that 21 days, would you consider that like the like the end doc or like the – No, like, that's not – that's just like a – so To work out? <laughs> yeah, it was like 360 dudes, and I want to say at the time maybe 40 of them got selected. In my okay. class, um, and most of them were voluntary guys, but guys who quit. So that's like a pre-selection. Yeah, yeah. I do like a land nav, and uh, well, and that's because you always hear so like the Marine Corps side, like any of the, the force guys before it was Marsoc, it was you had like a week long in dock where they just smoked the piss out of you, had you running all over the place, you know, had land nav that was un- undefinable, just essentially keep you awake, and then you always hear because everyone's writing books, but for like the the seals, like you know, bu- yeah. the buds week, which is actually just really a week. Uh, haze fest before they actually do their actual real training so so when i when i went through it's changed quite a bit right like so when i went through it was like it was just you had to be 21 years old um and 21 years old and able to do the prereqs so we just showed up and no one yelled at you it i mean during log pt they would yell at you but no one yelled at you it was basically just like take instructions from a dry erase board and then do your thing and so it would be like hey dry erase board you need this in your packing list go to this building they're going to give you a, a grid coordinate go to that grid coordinate and follow instructions from the next dry erase board and you just you i walked i've walked so many miles um and there's more things within there too like there's it's kind of a there's a very coveted kind of secrecy around it but the the real when i went through the real intent was to to identify self-motivated individuals who didn't need uh someone to to get them out of bed in the morning you know, to get them doing Hold, their holding thing. Holding your hand. Yep. Yeah. Problem solvers. Yep. Problem solvers, singletons, guys that you could just say like, hey, I need you to figure out how to get, like I said, get javelins into this country to eliminate this threat. I don't care how you do it. Figure Good it luck. Out. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. I mean, that, that was selection, which was a, which was a huge eye opener for me. It was so much fun. It's really sucked, but it was so much fun. You enjoyed the challenge? Oh, without question. Yeah, it was I like, a, it was a phenomenal it was a phenomenal way for me to validate like who I was as an NCO um, or an up and coming NCO because yep. I was a corporal at the time. And it was also just an opportunity for me to prove to everybody back at Fort Campbell that wouldn't send me to Ranger school, like screw you guys, you missed an opportunity to, to, to do what I wanted to do. Um, you know, it was, it was cool. I mean, cause the things they'll say to you too, if you're a young, if you're a young enlisted guy right now and you want to go to SF, they're going to tell you things like you need to know 17 languages. Right. Like you don't need to know any languages. You'll, you'll learn them when you get there. Yep. So, for me, that was the thing I always looked forward to, is going to a school or, or something that was going to challenge me. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it was something to look forward to. Like, here we go. We get to, we get to knock something else out. You knew that they were going to give you the ability to succeed, right? They're going to give you all the information you need to, to pull off whatever needs to be done. And it's just, it's just, it's just on you to make it happen now. And I, I enjoyed the, the thrill of showing up to, to get the class started. And then once you get in, you're like, here we go. Oh yeah, yeah. Without and in selection, it was it was just a constant gut check. You just these big dudes like there was eighty second Lurch guys in there that were quitting because it was too much for them. There was you know these phenomenal athletes and officers and everyone else that I just looked around and I was like, how are you guys quitting? This isn't that hard. It turns into a mental game. Oh, without question. Yep, yep. So So you hear that a lot. The uh, it's it's all mental. It's not physical. It's all excuse me. It's all mental, and that that's that's true. Uh, yes and no. I mean, you have to you have to bring a baseline to the table, mm-hmm. um, but you can overcome a lot of physical things with with some uh, you know mental resiliency and fortitude uh, without question. 
So. I just remember all the time through the military, one of my one of my favorite games to play is I'll never be more miserable than this. <laughs> yeah, and, yes. and I just I always kept topping that the whole, the whole time I was through the military all the way until I got out. So I, I told my daughter when she's running cross country, I was like, hey, sweetie, here's the deal. Like when you're sucking and in the worst place, look around at everybody else's miserable face and take and pleasure in that. <laughs> and so like there's nothing more amazing than just laughing at someone else who's just having a miserable time. And then they look at you and go, that person is insane. <laughs> yeah, you might be a sociopath, but you know what? You're successful. So. so you get through selection, and then you roll into is it a Q course then? Yep, so got through selection, uh, uh, you know, finished that up. Uh, fun story there, like I got done with selection. You smell like ammonia. I don't know if you guys ever been in that, that stress. I mean, you just smell horrible. I got on a plane from Fayetteville to head back to North, to Nashville. Um, this nice elderly lady was sitting there. Maybe not elderly. She, that's much, she's probably in her 40s or 50s. She's probably, like, 50s. She's yeah. probably <laughs> like my mom's age, you know. And I fell asleep. I smelled horrible. I fell asleep, and when I woke up, my face was in her boobs. And uh, I mean, just like head in her boobs, smelly. And I just drooled because I was so tired from selection, drooled all <laughs> over her breasts. And, and so I woke up and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, it's okay. It's okay. I was rubbing your head. You reminded me of my son. And I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> so then I go down to baggage claim and my wife's there and she's like, hey, how was it? You smell horrible. And I'm like, yeah, that's ammonia. You think I smell bad. She's smelling these tits. That's the funny part. She comes over and she's like, oh, is this, you know, is this your boyfriend or husband? Oh, it's my husband. She's like, oh, he was just so wonderful. And I'm like, Lisa, I got a story to tell you. So I get in the car and I tell my wife and she's like, you did what? You drooled all over her boobs. I'm like, yeah, it was incredibly embarrassing. Um, so then, yeah, then we got back to Fort Campbell. Um, I found out my MOS, which I was uh, supposed to be an SF communicator, 18 Echo. Um, that was what I was assigned. Found out my language, which was Russian. So that was awesome. That made me happy because I knew I was going to get a good good group. And then uh, and then I went back to Fort Bragg and started the Q course. So so how do they, is it just needs of the Army at that time? Or do they factor in, like, uh, placement and any aptitude testing or anything like that, too? Or? So your ASFAB score, which yeah. I think still matters, ASFAB score mattered. Um you had some elections, like you could relatively pick. Uh, so, like, you'd choose one through four. It's uh, You have an 18 Bravo, which is a weapons sergeant, 18 Charlie, engineer, Delta, which is a medic, and an Echo, um, which is a communication. Those are your four baselines. Um, so I numbered, I enumerated mine. I want to say it was Charlie is what I wanted first, Echo was second, Bravo was third, and Delta was last. So if I could do it over again, I probably would have chose 18 Delta. But Really? Yeah, yeah. without question. So, um, but... I mean, that's more just because it's a, the, the skills those guys bring to the table. Like, there's been numerous times my 18 Deltas have saved my life. So. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. They bring, they, I mean, they're insane. But a ton of training, though. ton of training. That's what I mean, yeah. the training. Oh. and, and uh, Yeah. So, yeah, ended up getting being an 18 Echo. So then I went back to bag, or Bragg, excuse me, reported there. And that was my wife and my first PCS move. She had to do everything while I was at airborne school. So it was kind of fun. <laughs> then I showed up, and there was an apartment, you know, we, and started the whole Airborne school must have felt a little ridiculous at that point. Ah, uh, yeah, it did. It was more like just don't get hurt, just don't right. get hurt, yep. just don't yep. get hurt. Yep. So, yep. Um, yeah. So then started the Q course, which was, you know, very much. It's twofold. It's like you're learning your skills, but they're also assessing you again for leadership. And you can fail out. Like they'll boot you in a heartbeat if you're an idiot. So mm-hmm. you gotta, you know, make sure you're not doing stupid stuff. But it's also kind of like a fraternity. Like there was awesome times. There's numerous times we burned down the Highlander, which was just like this amazing small barn downtown Fayetteville, where, mm-hmm. like. I mean, just numerous amazing stories. So, so is this is this now into 2003 time frame? Yep, 2003. Yep, so 2003, uh, that was the whole Q course. So you do, you know, the whole Q course pipeline, which is roughly 18 months. Um, and then, uh, yep, so then I graduated from Q course, got my group assignment, 10th group. It was roughly 2004 fall. 
And uh, that's when I flew out to Fort Carson, reported, and then caught up with my first ODA um, in Iraq. I was in Karbala. So, so was your your language school is included in that that time yep. period then too? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yep. And then for uh, people that aren't that are listening that can't respond uh, to me, uh, Jake, uh, ODA stands for Operational Detachment Alpha. So you have uh, which is a it's a twelve man team. It consists of two two Bravos, which are two weapon sergeants, two engineers or eighteen Charlies, two eighteen Deltas, uh, two eighteen Echoes, an eighteen Fox. And then uh, you have a 180 Alpha, which is a warrant officer, an 18 Alpha, which is a captain, and then an 18 Zulu, who is the man of uh, SF. So, so would that be considered, you know, kind of like the the base unit for uh, SF then? Yeah, that would be your core your core unit for SF. Um, each company, SF company, consists of uh, six ODAs and one ODB, which is a support company. So they do all your logistics and backside support. Um, but those, of those six ODAs, you have a, a ruck team, which just walks a lot. You have a mobility team, which drives anything. In 10th group, we had snowmobiles, ATVs, everything that was with them. Um, you have your freefall team, and that's what I was fortunate to be on the whole time. Um, you have a dive team, which I'm very fortunate that I was never on because that's just insane. Miserable. Yeah. yeah, without question, miserable. You had a mountain team in, in, in Colorado, at least, at, at 10th group. So you had climbers. Um, and then you just had usually another standard ruck team or like a flex team or a pilot team. Those are guys who usually were what we called long hairs or like old wise dudes. This is way back in the beginning. Things have changed. Kind of like Gandalf from uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> just total <laughs> yeah. total wizards. Got the, got the cool hat and all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so. you know, that's the one thing about the Army. They have, you know, plenty of hats. It's <laughs> <laughs> valid. Yeah. Very valid. Yeah. So uh, you said you deployed to, was it uh, – is it Karbala? Yeah, Karbala, Iraq. Yeah, yep. I actually have a. I think I have a map of that. Uh, like one of the old. Yeah. Uh, when I was at uh, Infantry Squad Leaders uh, course between my first and second deployments, they had uh, all kinds of maps of like the known like you know big towns that we were operating out of Iraq. And I think I, I guess got some in my garage uh, still too. But what was what was the first deployment like then? So I mean, I, I think go back to the the comment you made earlier about leadership. Like mm-hmm. as a as a young E uh, five Green Beret. You know, I promoted E6 really quick after I got over there, but all I wanted was more. I didn't know how good I had it. I mean, I was a gunner on a truck, right? Like, you mm-hmm. can't ask for a be- As an SF guy, you can't ask for a better job. Like, you literally just shoot stuff. Get some. Yeah, and, and just you just drive and shoot stuff. Um, and so it was – and that was pre-Interac-wise. That was um, – there was IEDs, but they weren't bad, right? right. Like, it wasn't – EFPs haven't emerged yet. Uh, Mahdi Militia, if anybody, any Iraq veterans would know, Mahdi Militia was just starting to emerge. It's the evolution of war, right? So oh, yeah. we didn't have any up-armored vehicles, so they didn't think they needed yeah. you know, anything that could penetrate. And then we put armor on, and they're like, well, now we have to blow through the armor. It's just the evolution of war. Well, and out of, at that time, too, most of the armor was just like shit that we jerry-rigged that was like yeah. you know, eighth-inch steel, quarter-inch steel plates that we were – and like the turrets would have like, you know – rough angles of stuff around the gunner because it's like, hey, maybe it's not a good idea to have your entire back exposed. Well, yeah, and we had, uh, in SF, we had what are called GMVs, and so GMVs had guns in every door. So you'd have, like, saws, 240s, everything mounted in every direction. Then you had a, I was usually a trunk monkey or a 50-cal gunner. Trunk monkey, you had a 240 and, you know, your M4, and I usually carried an M79 because it was just cool. Um, (laughs) Nice. And then uh, we had a 50-cal on top with usually a saw in the eagle mounts. You'd have two up top. But, I mean, when we drive through town, we were called porcupines because we just or right. stick trucks because yeah. it looked like just guns were in every direction. And then by the end of that rotation, they had had they had, you know some someone got a great idea that we had to be up armored. So then they just started strapping stuff to us, and our and all of a sudden our truck slowed down and 
Correct. it wasn't nearly as much fun as driving through town and just yeah doing her job yeah so but so then then for you I'll, guys then too are, are those those 12 month cycles or deployments at that time or no we run a we run a six month uh six to eight month rotation so we would do six months on six to eight months on then come back do three months of like recovery which was like an individual school and then three months of pmt and then just go right back into it so sure yeah so it was it was we weren't we were pretty fortunate to have that that you know kind of that reset time um that a lot of other soldiers didn't uh regular military or conventional military had uh they had that 12 month polls and we were you know six on six off six on six off that, six on, i often off. wonder does that have to do with the uh, <clears throat> with the with the the duties that you had when you were in country, you know, like the, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you like you were in there for a shorter time because the missions you were doing were that much more intense or is it just because of uh, the, the training and that sort of thing? Um, I think it's a little both. So I think, okay. yeah, we did have a higher operational tempo. Like, um, you know, you would, and we weren't forced to do this, but we would just go out on target as much as we could. I mean, if you could go out on target three to four times a week, if you go on a target every night, you would. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, we had that high op tempo from a sense of while we're doing ops. And then I think the other piece too is our professional development because we're trying to grow all these specialty capabilities that, you know, they don't market as being on SF teams. Like you had all this additional education. And so you'd have to send people home to go to a school to do something so they could progress and do the next mission while someone either retired or transitioned to another unit or just to grow and continue to professionally develop. Um, so, I mean, it, it, you were, I would say, if you ask my wife and she says this, we lived in Colorado from 2004 and 2008 and then 2011 to 2015. And she still to this day says, I've never lived in Colorado because I was deployed that much. <laughs> yeah, so, right. yeah. yeah. Just, just uh, how much did, uh, how handy did that Russian come in? So surprisingly, there was a, there was a little bit, uh, there was a little bit of Russian influence within, within Iraq. Yeah. Um, uh, they built a lot of like the dikes and levees and stuff in there yep. in like the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. So there was, there was some, I, I, you know. Later deployments, I used quite a bit of Russian. I was in Republic of Georgia for a while and a few other places. Um, you were going to Afghanistan talking like that. <laughs> and that's the thing. I never, I never got to Afghanistan. Right. So, but yeah, yeah. They, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't like that. No, no. Georgians didn't like it much either. Yeah, oh, I bet. So, <laughs> that's what, uh, we uh, had one of our corpsmen on our second deployment that was a, a Polish immigrant. I think they doc knock. They moved to uh, Chicago uh, when he was like 13 from Poland or like 11 in there. Uh, and Polish has some, you know, crossover with Russian. So like oh, yeah. he, he knew, you know, Russian, knew Polish, and then he took like Spanish in high school. Somehow he ended up, you know, as a doc with the infantry Marines. But literally on the, the northeast side of Fallujah, we were, you know, essentially just doing presence patrols and checking for weapons caches or waiting for somebody to shoot at us. Uh, and we came into a house with a couple of military age males. And the one brother had left and fled Iraq because of Saddam and was in Spain teaching uh, and spoke fluent Spanish. But then when uh, Spain got bombed, I think it was a train station in 2002, literally the government of Spain said, everybody from Iraq, get the hell out of the country. And like they deported everybody who had any ties to Iraq. He got sent back home. But then his other brother that was another uh, military age male that was in there was an engineer and helped when the Russians came through and built this uh, dike system on the north side of uh, Fallujah and, and Ambar there. And so my, my corpsman, a 22-year-old guy, was, you know, we're, we're sitting there just a bunch of uh, rock eaters, and he's having a conversation with one dude in, like, Spanish and another dude in Polish. And it's like, how in the shit did you end up with us? And smart dude. Uh, but, yeah. So that, that, a lot of people don't really understand how much – international influence in like the pre Saddam, even the early bath era, like was, uh, going on in, uh, oh, yeah. 
you know, the old legacy to the British Empire and everything on that era too. So, well, and I mean, just like America, we have we have you know contracting mechanisms like KBR, Brown and Root, all those major major corporate conglomerations that you know, no matter where you are, they go and they they rebuild countries after natural disasters, conflict, whatever it is. Russia does the same thing. You mm-hmm. export industry, you export jobs, you you know you, that money goes back to build your economy, and, and that's kind of the 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 crazy part. So you'll run into Russians, Turks, uh, Americans, Spanish, everybody just all over the place. It's kind sure. of neat. So. And uh, on that that 04 deployment, so I mean, going out in town and going on mission on target to is this when you guys were rotating out of there? Was that at like the start of Operation Phantom Fury, or, or was you know like the big sweep through uh, Anbar, the Sunni Triangle at that time, uh, cracking down at the end of 04? Were you out of there? So before? we were we were there uh, 04 into I think I left. My daughter was born uh, May second, two thousand five, is when I left. So you um, made it through the elections then. Yes, yeah, so we made yeah. it through that whole whole push, and then. Um, yeah, and then I think the team, the rest of the team came back. Uh, I want to say it was June time frame, May June, just after after you know my kid was born because I came back. So sure, and, and so for the like at on target, like the our fir- first deployment, there was still looking for like legacy Saddam guys that were still oh, yeah. missing in country was, and that's. That's, you know, the the rock-biting infantry guys, that's not normally our bit to go out and, and track those guys down. But for the Special Forces guys, that's a, a lot of uh, the targets at that time that, you know, 2003, 2004 is still cleaning up a lot of the old legacy. Yeah, there's a lot of Bathists that we were looking for. So we were looking for Bathists or legacy Bathists. We were looking for uh, – um, so Mahdi Militia was emerging. So Jay Shell Mahdi was yeah. – so we – I mean – we knew from intelligence that they were going to emerge into what they were, the ninjas that they were. So we were kind of starting to go down that path. And then there was just a lot of bad actors. I mean, you had some of the Badr-Core Iranians. Um, mm-hmm. Karbala's, you know, a pretty big uh, religious site that a lot of people would come and transient through. Um, so, and, you know, we would just go out on target and, and basically try to find bad guys that were either criminals um, or they were legitimate terrorists uh, who wanted an opportunity to get a pop shot off at Americans or, you know, blow Americans up. Um, How so. would you describe the actual mission of, Special forces, right? So you guys are, I mean, you guys are taught to stand up another fighting force or help build a fighting force. Did you, I mean, define that how you would, how you would define it, I guess. And then did you spend any time training um, that rack? Oh, yeah. What was it going to be their military, I guess? Yeah, so, you know, I would, I would, there's two, there's two ways to look at SF. I mean, the primary thing would be is we're like international drill sergeants. That's how I, that's what I define oh, that's it as. Put it. Right? Like you go to any country in the world, you take, Whatever their baseline education is, it could be, you know, for anywhere from a second grader from a sense of like education. They're all adults, yep. um, but you know they have very rudimentary education. Maybe not even be able to read, but you you be basically, basically nation build and give them the opportunity to defend themselves. Um, and so you know in Iraq, surprisingly, we had a, a, a in in that rotation we had a, what we called a strike platoon. So we were still allowed to just basically build our own ad hoc. This is early enough. Build our own ad hoc. So we would recruit, train, develop, and then we would make these small little strike forces and then we'd go out and hit them, um, hit targets with them. And, and we had a very phenomenal, well-disciplined force that we were working with then. Um, and I mean, we really got after it with them. There was a very few times that I was ever concerned that, you know, an Iraqi wasn't going to be able to do the job that they needed to do. Now, as it, as the war progressed, I will say that kind of was they transitioned into a defined military force and military bureaucracy and politics and economics and corruption, you know, came into play. I would say that that level of trust dropped and we had kind of a different disparity that was there. So, but initially, oh, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, everybody. There was just so many grateful people. Um, people don't realize how oppressive Saddam was. Mm-hmm. There was, there was, especially in southern Iraq um, and in northern Iraq. If you kind of split the middle, right? Like the there was a lot of incredibly grateful Kurds and then a lot of you know 
a lot of Iraqis that just wanted the opportunity to live in a democratic society. Um, when they got the opportunity, I think they squandered it, unfortunately. Um, but like, you know, they were they were willing to pick up arms to defend what they thought the next generation of Iraq should look like. Right. So I mean, they still had some intervention here in more recent years, but at least at least it's stuck so far. You yeah. know, they're still their own defined independent country. You know, there's obviously in the western provinces, there's still some some advising going on, but they're they're still holding hold on their government, which is you know at least something I guess to, to hang your hat on and for us to hang our hat on because uh, it didn't look like it was going to be that way in 2014 time frame ish yeah. there for a little while so yeah um yeah. so uh made made it through that deployment rotated back home 05 became a dad what was that like you know so, special forces becoming a dad so crazy know? story right like you know I'm in I'm in Karbala I got to get a get a ride or a fl- plane trains automobiles to Baghdad so I can get on a plane and fly to Kuwait. And then from Kuwait, I flew to Chicago, Chicago. I flew to Minneapolis. My daughter was born here in Mankato because my wife came home to Minnesota when, uh, uh, when Bella was born. Well, what was crazy about it was, I mean, I just, I mean, I left, I literally left target more or less in the same clothes, hit a dust storm. So I couldn't get out. So I missed the birth. Um, and I won't, there's one really funny story. My wife would kill me if I told her, so I won't tell that one, but, uh, I end up getting back, I get back to man, get back to MSP, right. After going through Chicago with my body armor and them like searching all my stuff. And I go off every bomb detecting thing that was possible. I get into MSP. My sister-in-law picks me up and, you know, it drives me down. I walk into the, into the, the hospital and I like turn to the nurse here in Mankato. I'm like, Hey, I, I'm literally wearing Iraq clothes with like poo dust Mm. all over them like i need something and it was it was amazing all these nurses were like here we'll get you stuff and like here you can have my lunch and do all these things it was like it was such a time of unity you know post 9-11 iraq invasion like everybody was kind of in that direction that they just like totally embraced me kind of annoyed my wife who just gave you know gave birth (laughs) that all these cute nurses are taking care of me Um, but then i walk in i get to hold my daughter and it's like this is just crazy i left combat like 24 hours ago and this is something that it's an advantage of soft like we have that we're so well valued that they're willing to get you home for those life events. So it was really cool. But you know, to, to be then in Minnesota, you know, after coming off target, holding my newborn baby and just being like, wow, what the heck? Yeah. Like Hunt, I'm a, I'm a dad hunting bad guys last night, watching babies being born the next yeah. day. You know and it's I mean? funny too. Cause I popped a bunch of, uh, oh, what's this ambient on the plane? Oh, yeah. Cause I was like, I can't sleep. I'm so stressed out. I'm having a kid. Right. So I popped a bunch of ambient. I didn't fall asleep. I just stared. So you hallucinated. Ah. Oh, I, <laughs> I was just drooling and staring at the, the whole way back. So it was pretty crazy. But yeah, so then Bella was born, and then uh, and Bella then Bella was born. What? So this is 05? Yeah, two thousand five. Yep. Okay. Yep, May second, two thousand five. She was born here in Great Mankato. That's why she's a true Minnesotan. Uh, my other daughter's born in Colorado. She declares to be a Colorado native, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, but uh, as long as she doesn't go vegan, you're fine. A- <laughs> <laughs> that won't happen. Uh, no, that won't happen. So uh, yeah, and then we went back to Colorado, and then it just started the grind again. And I had more yeah. Iraq rotations after that. So so still staying with the the same same unit then the same ODA then yep. uh, going forward. Yep. So then I went. We went back. Uh, got back from that trip. I got to make sure my dates are right. Yeah, it was 05, Came back. The 2006, we went into Republic of Georgia to help train them, um, which is a phenomenal mission. Uh, and then, you know, the Russians didn't invade too long after that during the Olympics, I think, in 2008. Yeah. So we got to, that was, a neat, that was a neat experience to kind of see what we trained, get to get to not only defend their nation from a, a foreign actor, but be kind of that first evolution of when, you know, Vladimir Putin started to be a jerk. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we came back from that trip, which was, that was a real, like, and I got to use my Russian, which was cool, but kind of a real SF mission. You know, you go in, you meet, you train, you break bread, 
do everything else. That was kind of cool. One of the few SF guys that got to do that during the war. Yeah. Um, and then I came back from that trip. Quickly, we just refit, and then we headed out the door for Iraq again. When you so, were in Georgia, the country, not the yep, state, absolutely. Uh, for, for some of our listeners to just, just clarify that. Uh, it, you, you're it, talking to Jack. We know. Yeah, whatever. Cleveland education. So. Right. Uh, and and I actually, uh, unfortunately, uh, he passed. Uh, had another uh, friend um, that went to school with um, that uh, was in SF and 18 Delta. Uh, Eric Greger uh, over by Montgomery and Jack's aware of him too. Is a good buddy of ours. Uh, but uh, whatever group has South America, um, seventh group, seventh group uh, that was either b- between his Afghanistans or before his Afghanistan. Uh, they got to go down to, uh, I think it was Columbia, and like they oh, yeah. lived out in town. They trained yep. for it. They had, like, they were wearing civilian clothes, and the group guys were, like, in a flat in a high rise, and they'd still pull their own, like, internal security and everything yep. else on a four, too. But so obviously, you're not in South America, but was that kind of like what the, the Georgia rotation was, is you were out in town or with local nationals? You I mean, were in, like, a defined military, U.S. military base or FOB, like you would be in Iraq? I mean, we lived with the, with the Georgians. I mean, we just went basically native. We stayed with them during the week, we stayed at the barracks with them, ate with them you know, trained with them, everything. And then during the weekends, we'd go into town and, and enjoy the, 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 you know, the weekend nightlife and everything else. Sure. So, I mean, and, it was, it was awesome. And so you're, you're probably helping train and instruct in yep. uh, weapons and tactics and maneuvers. And yeah, so we, we helped them uh, start their first like special operations type unit so that this was around the time there's so much history with Georgia that a lot of people don't know with Russia and everything else, but um, they just had, you know, became, you know, started the transition towards NATO. They're not in NATO, but transition towards NATO and, and as a result of that desired transition, uh, you know, there was a lot of Russian influence that was coming in to try to stop that from happening. So we were there to go train and help them take like a police force and a military force, bring them together into one special operations force. Russians were trying to do what you guys were doing. Or know, prevent us. Yeah, or prevent you from doing what you're doing. Yeah. What's the, I mean, what's the uh, terrain and uh, landscape like uh, there as far as urban and, and rural mix? Uh, I would say it's, uh, I would probably equate it to like Oregon. Okay. Right. So, like, the cities are big. Um, I mean, they're still Eastern European cities, so they're, they're you know plumbing's above ground, and that's because when the pipes freeze, they're easier to fix. Yep. Right. Like, um, and you're on the the Black Sea, I want to say, if I remember right. Um, so you know the uh, so you have your sea region, which is all casinos and vacations and everything else. Then you have inland, which is very agrarian agriculture. Um, but you have the Caucasian Mountains or Caucasus Mountains, um, just super beautiful. Uh, I mean, amazing ho- birthplace of wine. So you have amazing wine, amazing cheese, phenomenal meat. Like my favorite food to this day is called King Gali. It's this I'm, dumplings of the world. I'm going to open a restaurant someday. And King Gali is a dumpling from Georgia that's sure. just off the chain. So yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, yeah. Jack's got a barbecue sauce. If you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that what it was? I thought it was a. Yeah. Well, you know, or, or a raw there's room to yeah. expand. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah. well, so so made made that that round, and so professionally, then at that point, you know, are, are you still you know rocking the the E six here? Are you just you know a guy up in the turret? Are you progressing as a, a team leader? Or how does that next leadership progression go for you on the next deployment and within? So that was, I mean, that was a from a, from a leadership perspective, that was a, kind of a defining rotation. That one trip was pretty defining for me. My my team sergeant at the time, as much as when I had him, I was like, yeah, this guy's a pain. But uh, looking back on it, it instilled some incredible discipline in the whole detachment. Um, you know, there's this these these times in your career. Not everybody has them, but the military were like there'll be this like perfect nexus of all these people coming together at once. And we didn't know it, but uh, the the ODA at the time was zero seven four. Um, we came together in Georgia for that rotation. Uh, like we we trained together, we lived together, we slept together, we partied together. Like we were, 
there's more fear about failing my buddies than there was ever about failing the mission. It was like, I don't want to let Brendan, I don't want to let Zach, I don't want to let Larry down. And so this, this team just really built there. And then, and then that elevated my responsibility because the team starting at the time was like, Hey Brandon, you're in charge of the, being the primary instructor and you're going to be the primary demonstrator. So like you had to be able to shoot, you know, you're under pressure, you got to be able to use your language. Um, and so that really, you know, I, again, I didn't appreciate it cause I didn't realize what was happening, but that just codified a team, um, and built us up in a way that I, I, I'll say it like we were probably the best ODA in, in, at the time in special operations from my perspective. A bunch of guys are going to disagree with that. but Yeah, like every other guy in special yeah, operations. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that, but that's the mentality, right, you yeah. have to have is that we're, we're the best. And, and I, I think we've talked about it before, too, on here is that iron sharpens iron, right? Like, oh, yeah. You right. Know, ha- hammer swingers make you swing the hammer harder, you know, too, and then look at what they're doing. And then you get that sense of pride of, yeah, nobody fucking pounds a snail better than this oh, yeah. group. Uh, okay, yeah, right. That's where we're done. That's, that's, <laughs> we didn't. Really, we haven't talked about it in a couple episodes, but poor uh, Jake. Every time uh, somebody swears, primarily me. Uh, I mean, uh, well, I'm Catholic, man. I go to I go to mass on Sundays, so I gotta have something to be forgiven for, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, if you don't sin all week, uh, why would you go to church on Sunday? <laughs> yeah, but every time I swear, he's got to write down the time for it. So, uh, Sorry. yeah. So that that rotation was uh, sounds pretty unique and and kind of. Oh, yeah. um, at, the, at this point, too, uh, so this is in the 2006 time frame? Yeah, 2006, yep. To, and, and so do you have any inkling that, hey, maybe this Army thing's a career or, you know, what, how does how are those thoughts going in your head at the time? So I think, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, all I really cared about there was when was my next combat deployment. Like, sure. You know, I would do whatever it had to do to, to get more combat time, um, mostly because, you know, you, you're, you, train your, you train your butt off, right, so you can validate you know, get the opportunity to validate all those skills. I mean, I would, you know, it's, you're a football player, you train, 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 you go, you go, and you play, you play, you play, you play, and then you go to the Super Bowl. Well, you know, unfortunately for some, and, and it's kind of the hardest part about it, because as you mature, you realize that combat is is a non-desirable thing. Like, Correct. It's right. incredibly validating, but if I don't have to send my kids to war, that's a win, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, but as a young operator, like, that's all I wanted to do is go back to war. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where it was focused at. I didn't really think about career I think the smartest thing I did not soon after that was I decided to give my GI bill to my kids, like on a whim. Yeah. Um, other than that, like, and I was really dumb and young. So that was the smartest decision I ever made. That's my plug. Give your GI bill <laughs> to your kids, all you guys on active duty. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, like that was, that was, it was just focusing on how can I be a better operator for my buddies to my left and my right? And how do I get back to combat? So, <laughs> yeah. So doing that grind going on, came back from Georgia and right back to Iraq then again? Yeah, so I came back. I came back from that. I was on a free fall team. hadn't gone to Halo school yet. I went to free fall school then. Uh, so I went to free fall school there. Where's where that based out of? Uh, Yuma, Arizona. Oh, really? Yeah, down in Yuma. Yeah, there's a Marine Air Station down there. Yep, uh, MCAS is in town. We're out in the proving grounds. Yeah. So YPG. So I did that, which was fun. Um, and that kind of builds on the next deployment, which was kind of like a really cool story. And then I uh, got to do some con- uh, cold weather training in that fall which we got to go ski in the mountains and, yeah. and really hone our like Iraq to Yuma to cold weather I was yeah. going to say that's uh, a heck uh, of a transition yep. yeah. is that up like uh, NTC then up there or is that up in like Bridgeport in Northern California so we were we actually did Keystone Colorado okay oh uh, I suppose for it yeah. yeah so we were we were just out in uh, Camp Hale or, or uh, I guess it would be uh, Leadville area and then we did a lot of skiing on, on the resort so just kind of a neat kind of a neat way to take Minnesota and that's what I always think is cool is like I grew up skiing at Mount Gato and then the next thing you know I'm I'm skiing through the Alps or skiing through Colorado or doing whatever else in a military Getting uniform. Paid. <laughs> yeah. 
and yeah. carrying 200 pounds of gear in my back and my hands are freezing from carrying a stupid rifle but other than that it was it's pretty cool oh, so. learning a lot of skill sets that you're helping helping kids with now too oh, as yeah. far as the alpine skiing so oh, yeah. uh, so i don't want to gloss over it too much because not a whole lot of people go to free fall and halo uh school right so what what's i mean what's that course like what what are you going through as much as you can say about it i mean it's uh you know when i went through free fall school uh you know back i guess circa that have been 2006 like the it was very much less what it is now um we we were working on tactical infiltration uh we were working on uh hey ho or standoff which means you pull your parachute high and flow low um and you just float forever uh but what it's become now is probably i would say without question one of the most efficient clandestine mechanisms to infiltrate special operations forces into denied area um but yeah i mean it's it's a course where you you i think i did 30 jumps over a three-week period um from roughly twelve thousand feet out of c-130s you know and just you just jump 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 day night and it was awesome so it was like I just wanted to go. Like I'm yeah. not gonna lie, you could have not stopped me from jumping off the back of that plane. It's awesome. Yeah, but which is actually kind of cool, right? So kind of a bit of my legacy for my career is I left that went to my next Iraq rotation. Actually, uh, uh, we actually got to do a combat freefall jump into northern Iraq. So that was a really it was my second jump, second jump out of the basic course. So it, like jumped in Yuma, jumped once in Colorado. My junior 18 Echo, uh, it was his first jump out of the uh, basic course was into a denied area in Iraq. Super so, cool. yeah, so, so, so freaking cool. And then, so we got that knocked out going after, a, uh, you know, some, some dirt bags. Sure. So, but, I, there's plenty uh, of them. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't get the, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, be a smart ass on it, but I, I don't get the, how the badges work and qualifications, you know, in, in the army. Cause Marine Corps, you don't put anything that's, you know, on your regular your uniform, so with that that free fall uh, into northern Iraq, would you have got a, your your mustard wings in? And so they call it for like a combat yeah. jump then. Uh, yeah, so we got a um, we got a mustard stain or a bronze star on our free fall wings for that. Okay. Yep. So yeah, not a whole lot of those guys around. Uh, no, it, it, it was that that was that, and that's when I go back to that the team started to come together. So we you know we switched out leadership because every three years roughly it changed leadership on an SFODA. We had a new team sergeant come in. So the previous team sergeant did a phenomenal job building our base, our foundation. You know, like you think about it from like a uh, general manager of a program, like he built a phenomenally well-disciplined team. We came out of that. We did a bunch of winter training, a bunch of free fall training, a bunch of these amazing, very well-disciplined combat stuff. And then we deployed and we just got after it. And yeah. there was a target we couldn't get to unless unless we free falled into, um, put up a concept to do it. The general officer signed off on it. We jumped in and, you know. That, after so was that one of those things that stuck with you leadership wise then like oh yeah later on down the road is in, invested in your guys and ensuring that they're getting you know as much training to develop professionally and, and keep them engaged and it, successful for the team in general with all that multidisciplinary and skill set i mean i think it was a couple things i think the thing i took away from it first off is like you know repetition is important like reps are incredibly important like giving your guys opportunity to succeed and fail um and I, it took me a while for this one to stick but giving people opportunity to succeed and fail is critical. And then, uh, you know, I think you just have to trust those to your left and your right. And, and as you get strong together, you're going to be able to do amazing things. And I mean, we had a phenomenal team I and mean, we got, we, that, at that time, that ODA, I mean, everybody who's on, was on that team with me is now either a senior leader or retired or have gone amazing places. So sure. it's kind of a cool, is that, is that a, uh, is that a hard thing to get used to? I know as a, as a manager, not nearly the same thing, obviously, because there's no lives on the line Basically, radio, no. but, yeah. but, <laughs> 
What are the, what are the, did you tell them about your experience running the curling club? <laughs> <laughs> That's brutal. Yeah. You have no idea. Uh, yeah. uh, people, it takes a lot of effort to drink that pe- much beer, man. People think yeah. living the dream is easy. I'm telling you, the <laughs> struggle's real. But the one thing I've always struggled with as a manager is that the best way to train people is you have to, you have to allow them to make their own mistakes so they can learn from them and, and rebound yep. from them. And I'm very much a, a hands-on guy where I'm like, I ain't got time for that. If I want to see mistakes, I, you know, I, I want it done right. I so, call Jack and Mike. And so it's, it's really hard to sometimes to let people make mistakes so they can learn from those. Is that, did you find that that was similar, that it's, it's hard to let people make mistakes so they can learn from them? Now, obviously, you can't let them make mistakes in combat, but in that training process. I mean, I, I think, you know, as a young leader, I had a really hard time with it, right? right. But as I matured, I mean, I had a very, like, as a team sergeant, if you, if, when I had my own ODA um, and I was in charge, it was the same ODA. It was transitioned from 074 to a different number, 0314. But I had that same team as a leader. Like, if, if you screwed up on my team, and I feel bad about this looking back now, because, and I'll explain in a second, but like, if you screwed up, I was, I didn't have the bandwidth. I was like, you just pack, pack your stuff, man, put it in the hallway, you're done. But, but what I realized later was you're never going to forget when you fail. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you let your peers down, when you screw something up, especially if someone gets hurt, you're never going to forget. And you're never going to let that happen again. So if anything, you have somebody who is I mean, some people still do it. Some people are dumb. But the reality is, is you're typically not going to make that same mistake. Right. So you can ask them to do that task and they're either going to be like, hey, it's not going to succeed because I failed last time and this is just a recipe for disaster. Or they're going to be like, I will not let you down. And it took me I mean, it took me becoming a sergeant major before I really figured that out. And then it was like trying to get my team sergeants now because now I have six team sergeants I'm trying to grow to be like hey guys like it's okay if somebody messes up like let them you know I mean within reason you can do some dumb things but you know like if they can learn from it let's take the opportunity to let I mean let's make it hurt right like I'm not going to just let them off we're going to go for a run or I'm going to make you puke or we're going to have you know it's going to be painful but they're never going to do it again. Yeah there's going to be a stick there for the retention side but most most of the guys that you you want to continue to develop like you, you can tell that they know they screwed up and oh, they yeah. want to do something better. And I, I think again, not getting to a, a senior leadership side, but being around, um, you know, the, the small level, those are the ones like you want to spend the time with are the ones that get that they screwed up and that, you know, they need to do better next time and the, that they're hard on themselves. Uh, yeah. that's a, a thing to identify. And I really, that's a, you know, another thing in the military. I don't think the military in general gets enough credit for, for teaching, life lessons and perseverance on uh, that translate, I, I think, into success uh, later in life is learning uh, from failure, uh, personal individual failure, uh, team failure, and and learning that those really are the best teaching tools for you to develop and figure out how to be successful going forward. But that also, you know, we talk about leaders and people you're influenced by. Some of the people I've been influenced by the most, and we kind of foreshadowed earlier, are leaders I didn't want to be like, bad oh, yeah. bad leaders, um, and being able to identify what a bad leader is and how you can self-reflect on yourself and say, okay, that's a trait that I'm not going to have or that's something I'm going to improve upon so I'm not like that guy or that person over there too. I've, I've always re- reflected just on the short four years that I had in, I've always reflected on that, that um, – that ability to self-reflect um, and to self-analyze, um, you know, in the military, it's not just robots. It's you're not just asking, you know, somebody uh, to just shut up and take orders and listen. Outside of even the, the special forces, you know, the, the military uh, doctrine since World War One. After that, for the United States has been small unit leadership and oh, yeah. commander's intent. You don't. 
give you an electric schematic with every little detail in there. They give you a general idea and say, all right, leaders, figure yeah. out. A whiteboard at this location that directs you to the next whiteboard. At the There's next a whiteboard location. in the corner there. Yeah. 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 Well, and, you know, it's, it's funny, but U.S. Army is the only, in the absence of orders, or U.S. military, in the absence of, in the absence of orders, attack, right? Yeah. Like, no mm-hmm. one else does that. Everybody else just kind of stands there drinking their wine from their MRE that's all funky and smoking a cigarette, right? Yeah. Everybody else, you give a bunch of young, bunch of young, you know, NCOs or soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, now uh, what do they call them? Space Force. Space Force. Yeah. I think they call them Guardians. Like, you, you, you just, you know, you don't give them orders. Their job is to attack. Uh, pretty sure it's Klingon or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. little, little, little all uh, of that, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, we're j- jumping all over the place a little bit there. So, uh, that 2007, we got, a, you know, obviously more deployments down yep. the pike. But so what, I mean, what are, like, the takeaways, lessons learned, or kind of, you know, the activities uh, that, that kind of stuck with you from that one, besides the free fall, you know, and... I mean, there's a, there's a couple big things. Like I think, you know, hard work will pay off, train hard. You're going to succeed, right? Like that stuff matters. Um, I think the other piece was, is I, I, you know, I, I had a portion of my job at the time that involved kind of going outside the wire on my own and some other stuff. And every time I walked outside the gate, I'd give these kids a snicker, like these privates mm-hmm. on guard. I'd be like, they're not kids, they're young men and women. But at the time, they're, you know, I just look back on these 18 year old young, young soldiers and I just give them a Snickers bar or Gatorade and be like, Hey, I'm going to go out. Like, don't shoot me when I come back. Like, here's what's going on. Um, and then we got hit by a 10,000 pound V bid. And shit. the first person to come and like shake me awake after that happened was the kid who I gave a Snickers bar to. Yeah. Right. And I was like, Holy cow, man. I, I can't, I'm so grateful. Um, so I mean, you know, the time you invest in others matters. And then, uh, you know, there were some other like weird reflections on that too, that, you know, later in life I look back on it and it was just like, I was a little naive you know, and, and some of what I thought was good and bad, um, from a sense of leadership. But, uh, you know, I, I, in the end, I knew what it took to build a team. And I think that's what I took the most out of it is like, you know, you have to build an environment where all those around you care more about the collective, um, collective success than individual success. And that's, that's really what that team had at the time. And that's what that rotation was all about. Nice. So, yeah. I, I love that reference to kid too. Cause I mean, like, like 26 and in the military, especially unless it's side, it's like a 26 year old walk yeah. around looking like a 45 year old. I, like one of my squad leaders was like 32, and I thought he was like 70. He just <laughs> you know, had broken time, you know, and like he had a gap in, in service. And it's like, oh, God, Staff, Staff Sergeant Tate, man, that guy is just crusty. <laughs> He's like 31, and now yeah. like here at the precipice of 40, it's like, you know, man, I wish I could be 31 again <laughs> back, in, back in the young years, you know. Uh, so ro- rotate. So the second kid born uh, during this deployment or coming home from that? Because you're 2007, so this— yeah, 2007, got home roughly, I don't know, August time frame. Uh, and that's when, you know, things started to transition. I had to make a career milestone move. Like, you have to go and teach or go do something. So that was a portion of my career where that was coming. Um, and that was when, yeah, Faith was uh, Faith was born in August of 2008. Um, I was in, so I went back to Iraq for another rotation. I was in Baghdad for that one. Um, and then I just came home for her to be born. And then we PCS'd up to Fort Lewis, Washington to be a teacher for a while or instructor. So, okay. yep. So you got to miss pretty much both pregnancies then? Oh, yeah. Well planned. If you ask my wife, I, when I was in the military, there's two things I volunteered for, and they were deployments and deployments. And why I volunteered for them was to miss weddings. I'm sorry to my in-laws. They're hearing this right now. I'm like, what? So I volu- I never wanted to go to weddings, and if I could miss the majority of the pregnancy, I would go on a deployment. So, Well, that, that's cool. That, uh, that's a win right there. Sir. That's a win. Uh, well done, sir. The, ma- the math works, too, on the listed side. If if you're going on six to uh, eight-month deployments and come home when a kid's being born, it's better than coming home and your wife's three months pregnant. 
minutes. So <laughs> right. I mean, that, that would have been a, some bad math. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, that you know, does happen. You know, I, know you, I know you have a craving, honey. Try this MRE. <laughs> <laughs> Miracles right. every day, Mike. Yeah, you know. All right. Yep. So then, yeah, then Faith is born in 2008. So. Okay. And yep. so then, uh, well, she was born in Colorado because we heard she's a Col- oh, yeah. Coloridian. Or and, and, now, and I think it's fake news because she's here in Minnesota. She's an FFA and she's yeah. like fully embraced the Minnesota culture. Yeah. So And then up to... Uh, uh, Fort Lewis uh, McCord, right? Yeah, yeah. Lewis McCord. Yeah, what were you teaching up there? Um, I was teaching. There's a Swick school up there. Cool. Yep. So I did some my, yeah. my uh, special, but basically, like, there's a, a some special skill assignments up there. Yeah. That you, I taught did it. you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. So That's I mean, fun. that was really cool. Like, I got to teach other NCOs, and I think that was really enlightening. And officers. So, and yep. it was joint. So I taught Marines, um, you know, Navy, everybody. But you tried yeah. to teach the Marines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, those, those marines, those marines are pretty good. They're, those are pretty good. They liked the they liked the the primary color crayons, so they're pretty good. So. I always, uh, How many did they eat? <laughs> All twenty four. My, my favorite one was always the, they liked the the grape ones because they taste like purple. <laughs> and that's that's valid. Yeah, it's valid. All yeah. orange, you know, it's a flavor and a color, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, so we we love so, you, Mike. We love you, Mike. Was was that your your first? official like instructor teaching uh like duty then um yeah so like the i had to go through the, the army has a whole instruction program and sf does so i had to go through the whole instruction program for to teach other soft operators right. so i went through that program and then taught that's so, awesome yeah well oh, and, and that um i think military you know instruction the professional schools on that side of it um Again, nothing to your to your level, but just teaching at division schools for uh, like advanced infantry school. Each division in the Marine Corps has their own, oh, yeah. their own little schoolhouse, um, and so getting to teach there for just you know about the last year of my my enlistment. Again, more reflection. You get to be yeah. around all your peers. Public speaking, contrary to this podcast, I don't swear when I talk in front of a group. Um, you know, bullshit. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. Uh, Write that one down. But, yeah. but 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 like generally, like the the lack of you know fear of talking in front yeah. of people, and I always kind of joke, if you want to get over public speaking fear, get in front of a bunch of unlisted you know peers oh, yeah. and teach a topic that they all know or have already taught because they'll just tear you apart from the smallest little manner, like you know, the teach backs and all that side of it too. And it was pretty pretty ruthless, but that's a. Another valuable skill set uh, I think that that retains it has to translate into your your current career uh, too as well. Well, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing is like teachers are leaders, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. in the end, you know, it's still a leadership trait. Like being able to teach someone anything is is it takes leadership application. It takes you know repetition again. It takes confidence and, that, and you, for me, patience that, and patience. <laughs> patience, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and then. E- add the ego of a soft operator, right? Like every soft operator thinks they have the prettiest hair and they're the right. best soft operator out there, right? So then you got to stand up in front of them and teach them material. And if they don't agree with it or they want to question it, you have to stand on your, your laurels and be like, yes, this is good stuff. And they, so, they give you a chance to be home a little bit more? Uh, yes and no. I, was, I would say my wife would probably say no. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it was, I was CONUS. Sure. So I was in the United States, which was nice. Yes. Well, on that that instructor status, uh, the uh, instructor duty up there in Washington, are, are you guys still doing uh, field ops and trainings under that uh, side of it? Where you're, yeah, okay. Yeah. There's quite a bit of quite a bit of field time, quite a bit of TDY. So. Sure. Yep. So roll out of there. Is that a, th- a three-year hitch then too? Yep. That was a three-year pump. Um, so, Wait, I, so you first started now, or are you sergeant first class? No, I was a sergeant first class uh, when I moved up there, um, and then when I came, yeah, and I moved back as a sergeant first class as well. So. How does that work with special forces uh, as far as the, it's like the, I know it's different in the army, but like the, the Marine Corps, the master sergeant versus first sergeant route. I mean, is there guys in the, uh, in, in group that go the master sergeant route and stay and then, 
uh, go down that rabbit hole, or does everyone pretty much go first sergeant? Um, so typically, how they how in SF how it works. So like uh, when you when you pin EA to become a master sergeant, that's like your true tactical time. So that's like when you get assigned a twelve man ODA detachment commander who you know who's your commander, and then and you really get to lead and build the team you want to build. Um, so for us, it's you know you're still a tactician, but you're like the senior tactician, and you know everything your your detachment's re- reputation your detachment's credibility, your detachment's outward appearance, like everything is like you own it. And, and if it's, if you're a screwed up team sergeant or you have a screwed up team, that's you. If you have a successful team, it's you. So, you know, if you have good training, it's you. And it's, it's so much responsibility. Um, but so awesome. Like you, you literally got, I got four years, which is very rare. Typically guys get two to three. Um, but you get, you get two to three years to build your dream team, mm-hmm. you know, take these 12, you know, now men and women and make them into some of the most elite fighting force you can possibly make them and then typically take them out on trips and validate that they can do it. Right. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. So then what? I mean, so uh, you had done at Fort Lewis and then, uh, headed back to Fort Carson. Okay. Yep. And then took my detachment. I took zero through and four free fall team. Got to be the team starter of that deployed, um, all over Africa, uh, for that, basically that four year pump and then did a, yeah, all over Africa and some Europe, a bunch of Europe time in there too. Um, probably again, like six months on six months off. So we spent at least 50% of our time deployed, um, for that four years, uh, had some of the best NCOs ever, but phenomenal team, you know, again, and then, uh, did a bunch of free fall stuff and it was amazing. So, so in, in Africa too, were you seeing uh, some of that Russian influence over uh, there too at the time? Uh, I mean, it, Russia, Russia in Africa wasn't too predominant. More um, China, it was more China. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of Chinese influence. Um, but at the time, we were looking for AQIM, Al Qaeda, Islamic Maghreb. So it was sure. like Sahel, Sahel, excuse me. So that's when we were in Western Africa, and then in Eastern Africa it was you know you had uh, Al Shabaab or whoever whoever the flavor of the yeah. month was over there. That was was that about. 2012 or 14 uh were the two group guys the ranger guys in eastern uh africa that that got uh ambushed out there on a team that was niger Niger. Uh, that was i think that was 2018 or 2019 oh was that late wow yeah yep yeah for some Uh, reason i thought it was earlier back then yep uh yeah so that was you know things had really kind of cooked up in that area too so Africa's Africa's a crazy place. Like it's the birthplace of civilization. Yet I don't think people realize how much killing goes on there daily. Uh, it's it's it's. I mean, tribes yeah. are things. That's what I was gonna say. The tribes. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean, it's it's just their existence. Like, I'd be driving through the Sahara in a truck, right, and you just see this random dude with a walking stick, an iPhone, and a and like a, a a canteen made out of a bladder of a camel, right? Like, and he's just like walking through the desert on his iPhone. It makes zero sense. <laughs> Right, like it's just this weird. Yeah, where are you charging that? <laughs> Solar mark. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And then you'd you'd be in town, like you'd be driving through town, and there'd be kids playing soccer on an Xbox on a flat screen TV in a mud hut. Yeah. Right, like just it's a bizarre fusion of technology and and I don't know, like yeah, like runs in Afghanistan, they charge their cell phones off their motorcycles. Doesn't surprise me. You know, I mean, just, just you know it's yeah. stuff you don't think about. I mean, there's no, you know, it's crazy. So, so I mean, at this point, you you have to be thinking like you're making a career oh, yeah. at this point. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was. I had to go in deaf uh, after Washington. Okay. So we came back from Washington, and it was like, well, we're in it to win it now. And then you know, the wife was like, yeah, we might as well do it. So you know. hit your hump past the ten year mark. The 20, yeah, it was uh, the ten to thirteen year mark is where you had to reenlist in deaf. When I was, I think that was what it was back then. Sure. So you just owe until twenty. 
Yeah. So still had no desire to be a sergeant major. I'll tell you that much. So, um, but yeah. How, how that ended up coming about? Well, they told me I could, I guess. Yeah. So, no, uh, so my team starting time. Somebody ended. told you you couldn't. Like, nope, <laughs> yeah. totally can't American be a sergeant major. You're like, screw you. I'll show you. <laughs> yeah, you want to bet? So, it, I mean, it was crazy. My my team starting time was done, and you know you had to make choices that you know. But, yeah, and my my uh, company sergeant major at the time, who's a good friend of mine, was like, "Hey, Brandon, you got to take this assignment." And I was like, "Nope, don't want it." Brandon, you got to take this assignment. I was like, nope, you don't want it. And then the third one came, and he's like, you get a choice. You either take this assignment or it's not going to be good. And I was like, okay. So that's how I ended up being a first sergeant um, and moved over to Europe and uh, was the first sergeant for a theater special operations command. So it was a general officer first sergeant and did all my time there. So so away from the boys then at that, that Oh, point? it was miserable. Oh, yeah. yeah, away from the Actually, it wasn't that bad. I learned a ton. Uh, but, yeah, it was, away, it was leave the boys – I pretty much left the boys in 2015 and then got to go back in 2019. Okay. So spent four years away from them. And 2019, and was that when you pinned on Sergeant Major when you went back? Yeah, so I pinned on Sergeant Major, and I uh, uh, took a company of SF in uh, 110. Okay, so super 10. cool. Oh, yeah, which is an incredibly, incredibly awesome assignment as well. I had Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group. Leading some men there. Ah, the guys were awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep, phenomenal dudes. So and and women, we had a first female detachment commander come through. She was a phenomenal athlete. There's nothing better than watching her just like crush, crush <laughs> dudes. It was yeah. like awesome. Yeah. So yeah, it was a phenomenal. A good ego check. Yeah. Oh yeah, but definitely yeah. put guys in their place. Uh, so well, how, how was that on the the family then that uh, assignment? Because you're living over overseas permanently or you know full time during that period. So daughter's wife come over. Oh yeah. Or... So the first thing I'll tell you, the best way to tell your family you're moving overseas is go to the restaurant to where they serve the food they serve there. So I was like, I don't know how I'm going to tell my wife. She just got a new job in Colorado teaching at a school. Like, our life was, we just head to the house. Why is Brandon taking us to Schnitzel Palace? <laughs> so it was, we, went, we went to Schnitzel Fritz. And so we're sitting there, and we're eating Schnitzel Fritz. No joke. Nailed it. We went to Schnitzel Fritz, and we're eating. And I'm like, the girls are like, this is really good. I'm like, you like the food? And like, yeah, we love the food, Dad. I'm like, great, we're moving to Germany. Yeah. How do you like underage drinking? Because they can do that. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, yeah. God. So, so we kid, how'd kids take it? Not well. Uh, my, my older daughter was like, what about our dog? And then my younger daughter's like, I don't understand. And then my wife was like, you got to be kidding me. Uh, With a lot more explicatives in there. Yeah. So then we had like 30 days to move from Colorado to, to Germany. So, oh, God. Yeah, it was fun. So, so uh, on post living? or Yeah, we lived time? on post. The, so because of my position um, as a senior leader, we, were, we had to live on base, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but it, it, we were in Stuttgart, which is a very like uh, uh, spread out garrison. So it's really small bases all over the city. And so we lived in a flat over there for seven years, and it was on base, but it was amazing. Oh, so, cool. Yep. Kids go to school on post and everything then, yep. too? Yep. They went to a DOD school, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal education experience for them. We traveled. I mean, my girls have been to all over the world travel-wise. So, I mean, like all over Europe and everything else because we were able to easily launch from there. Um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a great, it was a great time for them. And very interesting to bounce them because they literally moved from Stuttgart, Germany, back to North Mankato, Minnesota. Oh, sure. So, like, that was a sort of a culture Ooh. shock. Yeah. yeah, I bet. So, so retired out of there. Yep, retired out of there. And what what now? Like, uh, the big, uh, you know, you've only known one thing most of your life now. So, I was fortunate enough to, to well, I was applying for jobs, um, had a bunch of different opportunities, ended up landing in healthcare. Sure. Uh, so, uh, as an HR director, you know, as a sergeant major or a CSM, you know, basically all you are is a human resources guy, really. Yep. Um, so, Ended up landing as a HR director for Newell Medical Center, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and then got to expand, and I had Oatan and Fairbow Hospitals for a while, 
Uh, so got into healthcare, did that for roughly 18 months ish. And then, you know, kind of had the itch to get into operations. So decided to make a transition over to the operations sides within healthcare. And, and that's where, what brought me to where I'm at today. Well, yeah. congratulations. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's yeah. a big transition. I know transition can be hard, you know? Oh, yeah. And, oh, it was. I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, that's, that's one thing I think, uh, I mean, I was going hundred miles an hour for 23 years and then to just hit North Mankato and just put on the brakes was like, this is, I'm um, first off, I was a little bored. I'm not going to lie. Yep. Um, I wasn't prepared necessarily to run into all my high school friends, you know, like that was yep. just kind of an interesting, an interesting aspect of it. Um, but I, you know, you mentioned hockey earlier, things, outlets like hockey, you know, competing sport. Uh, yeah. How'd you get into coaching? So two things, uh, coaching wise, I've, I've constantly sought the opportunity to, to coach, mentor and train youth. Okay. Right. Like, um, you know, and I've, I've never, I've never been a big ski racer. I was a big skier, freestyle skier, everything else. Um, and then the opportunity came up to, to coach the, the ski race team, which is for West East Loyola. And there's an MVL skier on there too. Um, and I just saw it as an opportunity where I can, I can, you know, skiing is all, it's a lifelong sport. First off, it's all about risk management, risk mitigation. Um, and then on top of it, it's about leadership as an individual, but then collectively taking all of your scores together to work and, and get a, basically the best score, be the fastest team. Um, and so then, you know, it was, it was more like, this is just a fit that I need. I need an opportunity to get wins. Winning matters. Um, and then, you know, every time there's some young skier coming down that, you know, is having a tough day or they're at the start line and they're stressed out and I'm like, Hey, hey, like you gotta, you gotta refocus. And you think this is bad? You should have been in Iraq in '04. Which it doesn't land well. Um, but I mean, it's, you're not wrong, right? Like I was three in '04. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what it came down to. And so it was an opportunity to 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 help these kids kind of define who they want to be in the competitive sphere, build confidence. Um, you know, male, female, whatever it may be, and just and but maybe good for you too to uh, you know. Uh, being a command sergeant major, you know, you kind of yeah. got to run a thing with a little bit of authority and, and uh, uh, expect a lot out of people and and uh, maybe become a little callous at sometimes, you know, just kind of uh, this is what I want done. I want it done now and, this, you know, et cetera. And then to have to go teach kids, does that kind of give you like a kind of round you off a little bit coming off of maybe? I think the other big challenge with like transition is how do you take what these phenomenal tools that were given to me and how do I apply them in the civilian sector? Like how can I? How can I be a good HR director? How can I be a phenomenal operations manager? Um, and I have all this experience, which involves like crisis and conflict and gunfire and all these things, but it, it doesn't work. Like you can't, you can't lead. Uh, I can't be a military leader in the civilian sector, but I can apply leadership traits, talent, skills right. to whoever the people are that work with me. And that's the challenge is there's a recipe there and you just have to be, uh, I mean, everybody wants to be led how they want to be led. And so that's what you have to figure out how to do it. So these youth, they want to be led a certain way, and i got to connect with them and be able to take them to the next level. Did you find that communicating with the civilian world was difficult? Yes and no. Um, I think the hardest part was getting them to understand sometimes what, what I had to bring to the table. Um, and then sometimes, you know, in the, you know I, I don't want to belittle people's problems because everybody has challenges in life. But there's first world problems, and then there's like real crisis and so when you have that variable scale of like, okay, you know, I'm being shot at, I'm being suppressed by the enemy, I have to figure out how I can suppress the enemy, maneuver my force, get my casualties out. Eliminate, to, yeah, the threat. Yeah, yep. right? Like, it's just a different perspective. So 
and, and you can't explain that like, hey, this is, you know, I understand you're having a bad day, but you're not being shot at. Like, that yeah, doesn't yeah. land well. Yeah. Right. Um, but you can. I know you, you want a Diet Coke, but your mom sent regular Coke. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And, but it, all it does is you just have to be with it enough, um, mature enough to just figure out how to connect with anybody and be like, hey, you know, like, I need you to, to work with me to get this over the goal line. Right. Well, and I, I think for a lot of guys transitioning out, whether it's, you know, 20 plus uh, odd years or whether it's, you know, your one enlistment. And out, I think a, a big sense of uh, what next is finding that next purpose and looking looking for volunteer and service opportunities in your local community and people you can impact uh, directly. I think if, if you get involved in that early enough uh, in the, the chain of events getting home as, as you continue to, to look for that, where I, I see, and I mean, both you guys can uh, chime in and correct me if, if you have different experiences, the, the, the guys and, and gals that, that struggle are ones that are driftless for a couple of years. That's just, well, I'm just going to come home and I'm just going to, you know, you know, find my muse for the next couple of years. And I, mean, I need a little break. Yeah. That, that comment. I just need a little break. Yeah, it's well, you know, and it, it, it's not the same, but it's like the, the people after high school is like, oh, I'm just going to take a couple of years off before I go to college. And it's like, most of them never end up going back yeah. to college. And I don't so, think people understand life momentum. Yeah. You know, oh, momentum in life. You know what I mean? If, I mean, it's hard to get going again, you know, even like uh, taking a break around Christmas time, you know, you take a little week or two off, you're not working as hard as you typically would, and all of a sudden it's like New Year's is over, and you're like, all right, let's get, let's get this thing going An again. An object you know? in motion stays yeah, in motion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. hard, to, hard to get it wound up sometimes. Well, I think, I think there's a piece to it, too, that, you know, we, we don't realize militarily when we're serving that it is as much service as we think it is, right? Like, you don't, you come back and you you involved in the community and, you know, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, but most people do a job for a paycheck to live a, a, a way they want to live. Um, and that's okay. When you're in the military, you're serving a greater good, right? And so, or a greater, a greater ideology, you know? Um, and I, and I yeah, think when you get back, yourself. Yeah. you have to find that ideology. You have to find that thing that makes you tick. And I think, you know, even as I coach, you know, I'm not trying to get these kids to join the military or any kid to join the military. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can start to see the kids that would be incredibly successful in the military but but and they might not be the most successful in academics or whatever it is. And I think you can kind of present that like, hey, here's an opportunity for you to, sure. to find a way to pay for school, to find a path, to you know. And I, and I think that's a piece of it too. That's important. I think one of the hardest things that people have in the military to explain to the civilian world is perspective, right? Like I don't think I think the civilian world has a really hard time understanding things that we've done, the things that we've gone through, and we're not very good at communicating those things. You know, sometimes yeah. you know and. Uh, and being able to being able to do that, to articulate you know the skills that we can bring to the table, I think would would make us even more impactful in the civilian sector if they really understood you know the the capabilities that we do have. I mean that's that's one of the reasons why healthcare is. I'm very grateful that I landed there. Is you know you in the military you have it's a very like uh, you know there's there's good days and bad days is the best way to put it right. In healthcare there's good days and bad days. So you know when I'm an HR director or I'm an operational leader and and, you know, it just happens to be that, a, you know, an individual happens to expire in someone's care. Like I can I can connect and reflect and try to help them mentor and work them through that challenge. Um, and it's, it's just a piece that I feel like that's where my leadership could be best used. And it's a greater service to the community. Um, you know, and I think that's just a piece that, you know, it's no different for law enforcement or mm-hmm. fire department or EMS crews. Like those are kind of how we all kind of naturally migrate towards each other. And, and I think that's an important piece, too. So you know, as you're separating, you should try to look to those you know, those trades or those skills that are going to give you an opportunity to connect with people who are like-minded. So. Well, and those, the, the career-wise, you know, for for a lot of people, uh, you know, finding that purpose in the next transition, but it, 
also I'd say, you know, don't downplay that, that coaching role that you have and helping uh, foster, you know, again, perseverance, yeah. leadership, and youth and the things that we all don the uniform uh, for and served is keeping this great experiment in the United States alive and, and inculcating leadership and pride and uh, individual determination in that next next generation. You know, you're you're early enough into it, you know, now we're, you know, you're not probably not as much seeing it, but, you know, you get 10 years down the road, a lot of these kids that you coached, you're going to run into at some point and you'd be surprised what, what sticks out with them, just like guys that you mentored in the in uh, group and, and special forces, we were talking about it off air before we, we came here. Kind of how this whole idea of strength from service came about is because one of the executives at the station here is somebody I coached in high school across because I, I, I you know, got involved in coaching uh, early on in, in youth sports and had kind of developed this relationship and help help foster. So, um, you know, if if you can't, um, you know, get <clears throat> involved in you know healthcare and EMS and law enforcement. Man, look around your community. Oh, yeah. There's 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 something you can do. There's a there's a elementary wrestling uh, you know uh, team that needs an assistant coach or somebody else to help do registrations. There's right. a, a, a firefighter. Southern Minnesota rural uh, areas. There's a volunteer fire uh, fighters. There's uh, for you know uh, for dad uh, uh, dads of daughters. There's you know if your your daughters in dance, they need somebody that helps build yep. the the set and construction like that. That community and that that serving others outside of just your own unit, whether you think about it or not, I mean that that has a ripple effect and that translates um, and that continues to build the next generation of leaders that are out there supporting this country and securing our freedoms and helping other people find their freedom, uh, whether everybody you touch goes into the military or not. So, well, and you've always said it, Mike, and, and I think it, it I think it rings true, especially for the uh, <clears throat> the the tone of this podcast is that. Um, service begins in your own community, on your own block. You know, you can't change the world until you change your own backyard, and you can't change your community until you change your own back. You know, you got to start small. you got to start in your own neighborhood and then change your community and then change your city and your county and your state and your country. And, and <clears throat> But you got to get involved. Yeah. you got to jump in head first, really. I think, I think right? once you're in the military, service kind of becomes part of your identity and something you need to, you need to, you need, you oh, need yeah. to continue to do, you know, and, and waking up every day and, the thought of of uh, doing something that's not selfless is a is a chore, then, right? I mean, I, I mean, when it comes down to it, leadership is. I mean, you can literally just be helping your neighbor shovel their driveway. Right, sure. right. Like it's always. I'm a big karma believer, right? But at the end of the day, like you just need to do more for everyone around you because it just makes the world a better You're place. You're a big karma <laughs> believer. Sitting guy that was the guy next to me with no legs. What did I do? Well, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I mean, you didn't need those legs. Yeah. You didn't need them. Didn't need them. Maybe God thought you sucked at running to start. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It brought us together here. That's no, what I was yeah, to do a podcast. Yeah. That's true. Uh, I, I have a question before we get to our final questions. I'm curious. Uh, you have two daughters. If one of or both of them come home and say, I'm thinking about the military, what's your, uh, what's your response to that? Well, you know, as a as a dad, and, and even looking back at my career, I'd like to think that you know they're in no way obligated to serve. Just because, right. you know, I, I'm selfish to think that I've I've done enough. But I would be so incredibly flattered and privileged if they said, "Hey, I want to do this." Um, but I, as a parent, if you know, that would be an incredible chore. I would I would have some some tough nights. So right. We would spend some range time before I let them join. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, but, and and that makes sense. You know, I mean, and. Um, you know, as a guy who never served, uh, you know, a lot of my family served. But the one thing that, that always rings true from everybody I talk to is always say, 
uh, my goal is to do everything possible so they don't have to serve. They don't have to go to combat. You know, they don't have to do that um, because everybody always says, you know, the, the guys who think that combat's cool have never been there, you know, right? And, and that's one of those things is you hope that, like, you want your kids to have better than you did. And if that means not being shot at, I think that's a valid response. They're pretty yeah. ruthless, too. So if they do go, there's whoever the enemy is, they're screwed. Yeah, that's, that's it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have a couple of those at home. <laughs> Uh, to wrap it up, I always have to like to ask a couple questions. And uh, the first thing I would ask is if you could go back in time, what would uh, the current Brandon tell younger Brandon? If you could give yourself one piece of advice back in the day, what would that be? Oh, man. Um, uh, holy cow. Uh, shoot more. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. You can't go wrong with that. That's a, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a lifelong skill. That's a lifelong skill, that's for sure. Uh, To wrap the podcast up on a much, much lighter note, favorite barbecue food? Oh, man. Uh, Favorite barbecue food, without question, would probably be, oh, brisket. Oh, nice, nice. High end, I like it, I like it. See, infantry guys always go for ribs. You know, the the special forces, they want the brisket. They want the high end stuff. stuff. We appreciate, you know, coming on the show and, uh, you know, everything uh, you've done for this country and, uh, you know, Proud to call you a brother, and uh, glad to have you in our community. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah Brandon, man. thanks for the time, and thanks for your service, and uh, continue serving the community. We appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, Preston Lee Bear. Questions, comments, concerns, or if you'd like to suggest a guest for the Strength from Service podcast, please email us, strengthfromservice at gmail.com. This is the Strength from Service podcast.